Elixir Talk is brought to you by Crevalli, an Elixir training and development firm run by me, your Elixir Talk co-host, Desmond Bowie. If your team is adopting Elixir and would like hands-on expert guidance, we can skill you up and make sure you're building things properly. To learn more, visit us at crevalli.io or email me at desmond at crevalli.io. That's D-E-S-M-O-N-D at C-R-E-V-A-L-L-E dot I-O. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Talk. My name is Desmond Bowie, and I am joined by my British co-host, Chris Bell. Hello, American co-host, Desmond. What is up, Chris? How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I am uh, fully in the process of writing my talk for, for MPEX LA. It's coming right up. I know, and it's slightly terrifying that I'm uh, only a few slides in, but it will get done. I wish you could see statistics on like when speakers prepare for their talks. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, I'm one of those people that I'll start thinking about it a month in advance and I have the outline all mapped out in my mind. It's just actually putting it down to paper, you know, mm-hmm. or in this case, slides. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's one of those things where I tend to always put it off until the absolute last moment because um, I'm a terrible human. So. Well, I think it's also like an, any other piece of art where it's, you know, it's it's not always done mm. or it's never done. Although in this case, you have to give the talk. I mean, <laughs> when I'm giving talks, I'm always like working on something right up until the last second, tweaking this or adding that. No, definitely. I mean, I, I'm also very happy that you called it art. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I do like to think about my keynote slides as being artistic. So uh, I <laughs> feel very happy about that. Well, good. You know, we have the highest standards at MPEX. I know. I'm trying to add all those whooshes, you know, that magic move all over the place. So, Well, and part of the, part of the fun thing about this conference is um, thinking about the fun stuff that we can do. One idea that actually didn't make the cut was we were looking at having a, um, a moon bounce. Right. Can you explain what a moon bounce is? <laughs> a moon bounce, for those of you uh, who are never children, is a large inflatable rubbery structure that um, you jump on and it bounces you up. <laughs> it could be <laughs> a trampoline, a castle. It's like a trampoline, only it's inflatable. Oh, a bouncy castle. Yeah. Do you but call, we call them it a moon bounce in America? <laughs> oh wow! So actually, I had no idea about this. I think probably people think this is rehearsed, but like honestly, I had no idea that that's what you called it. <laughs> I'm in like full shock over here, you know. Well, unfortunately, it did not make the cut because they have to have these loud air compressors to pump the thing up. Right. And we decided that that would um, interfere with the the piano player. Yeah, I so. can't really imagine the idea of like hearing a really nice jazz pianist and then over the top hearing this like loud compressor noise. It probably doesn't quite meet with the vibe, does it? Yeah, yeah, but. it's cool though because um, the venue is a uh, a warehouse space in downtown LA, oh, so we have thirty foot ceilings, exposed rafters. Uh, we certainly have the room for it. That's cool, but um, you know, just didn't work out. Uh, and there's a disco ball, right? There is a disco ball. Does that mean we're going to be discoing? <laughs> perhaps we're still working that part out uh i see i see well we I, I just look forward to the idea of you and i getting down busting some moves you know oh yeah i there is i mean there is a dance floor there that we might take up or we might leave out in case someone feels the urge to dance about programming <laughs> where uh where is the after party i'm hoping there is one 
Uh, it's going to be nearby at a, uh, a bar that we haven't selected yet. Ah. Uh, I know. Stay tuned. But um, L.A. is funny because um, so we started the MPEX conference in New York a couple years ago. And this is our first one in L.A. Um, and in New York, you walk everywhere. And we would have the after party about five or six blocks away. Um, in L.A., you generally drive places. Mm. So we're going to find I mean, it'll be something nearby in downtown. Um, but uh, we found actually a drink that one of our other organizers, Troy, uh, suggested. It's a, uh, you know, now I can't remember the name, but it's a purple drink, some kind of martini with uh, creme de creme de violette, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. So we'll do something. Troy's going to be completely devastated at the fact that you forgot the name. So yeah, I know. Apologies I know. to Troy on Desmond's behalf. Troy has a uh, a podcast that he does on uh, on drinks because Troy makes drinks. He's yeah, makes very good drinks. Yeah, so we should have him on sometime to discuss drinks. Definitely. If there's one thing that we like besides Star Trek, it's drinks. Yes, I think we're very cliched. Mm, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm okay with it. I've, I've come to accept it at this point. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, so we're only like what, like five days away from the conference. Uh, yeah, depending on when this episode comes out, it's going to be this weekend, um, Saturday, February tenth. We have a couple tickets left on sale on our website, which is mpex.co/la.html. Chris will remind you not to forget the HTML. Don't forget the HTML. Um, yeah, tickets are on sale there, and uh, we also have a couple tickets left for the trainings on Friday, the day before. Uh, I'm leading a basics training for folks that are new to Elixir, and we have core team members Andrea Lapardi and James Fish doing a training on property-based testing, uh, gen servers, and a couple other TBD advanced Elixir topics. So it it's pretty cool to have um, two core team members in one place at one time. So this is your chance to uh, to skill up with them. Definitely. And if you don't recognize those names, you might know their handles a bit better, Fish Cakes and What You Hired. So yep. uh, you've probably seen them all over the Slack, all over the GitHub. So it's going to be pretty cool that they're, they're uh, doing the training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm psyched. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, same. So what have we got on the uh, docket for this week? Elixir talk. Uh, we have a couple of questions. Um, let's see. The first one is a question from GitHub user C. Clark, who's curious about managing multiple versions of Elixir. Um, let me see the question here. So if any of you uh, are curious, we take questions from our GitHub repo, which is github.com slash Elixir talk slash Elixir talk. So open up an issue and we'll get to it. And um, uh, C. Clark comes from the Scala JVM world, dabbled in Ruby and Python, and is used to a couple of tools for managing versions there, and is curious about what the situation is with Elixir. There's a few options. There's KeyX, XENV, and ASDF, and is just curious if there is something that people have settled on that um, hasn't really been announced everywhere. So great candidate for an Elixir talk discussion. Definitely. Uh... So I'll, I'll jump in. So I'm a huge fan of ASDF. Um, ASDF is a pluggable version manager that basically has a plugin-based system so that you can add different languages. So um, at this point, 
They have a full range of support for Erlang, Elixir. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also have support for Ruby, for Node. I think it's Go as well. Can't remember. Um, but you know, on on my team, what we use is ASDF. Um, it it basically creates a .tools version file in the root of your project. Um, and then when you jump into that project, you can just run ASDF install. It will install those dependencies. It will manage everything for you, and everything's good to go. So um, just, to, just to add a bit about Erlang and Elixir versions. Uh, so we, you do have to depend on both of those things, if you didn't already know this. So in Erlang, you have to depend on an OTP version. So the current one is 20.1, I believe, as of today. Um, and then you also have to have an Elixir version. And right now, 1.6 is out. Woo! So uh, yes. if you haven't listened to the podcast with Jose where he talks about loads of that, go and listen to our previous podcast because uh, it's an hour long and it's awesome. And he mm-hmm. is a great person to talk to. So a uh, little self-plug, but uh, well worth it. Um, but yeah, so you, you generally like, you have to map your Elixir version to what's out in Erlang as well. So. Um, the Elixir versions will work with older versions of Erlang and OTP, um, but you need to be careful about that as well. Um, and really, you should keep thinking about upgrading your version of Erlang and Elixir to get all the speed benefits, security benefits, and everything, like like every other language, really. Yeah, I've been using ASDF for a couple of months, and um, it's very clean. It's very easy. Set it and forget it. Uh, I mean, don't forget that you have to upgrade, but... <laughs> Just use the tool and don't look back, I would say. One nice thing about um, Elixir as a compiled language is you don't have to deal with the uh, the gem sets that you would have when using RVM or um, you know these different gem files. And oh, well, I have conflicting versions of my system. Mm-hmm. How do I know what to use and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's nice because you have all these dependencies built directly into your project and you handle them on a, I guess, project by project basis. Um, you upgrade versions. Blow away your build directory. Uh, yeah. This has come up for me a couple times in the last week or two. Um, make sure you blow away your underscore build directory. Uh, and then recompile, and then you should be good to go. Mm. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I ran into a slight issue with installing Erlang 20 um, on my Mac, which is running whatever the... Oh, Sierra, I guess, not High Sierra. Mm-hmm. Um and, and what we ended up doing was like I found an issue on the ASDF Erlang page and followed that, and someone had done like a slight fork. Um, there was some like C dependency that was missing or something. Um, I mean, being incredibly vague, but I'll link to it in the show notes so you can, <laughs> if you run into the issue, you can do the same thing. But I think that's like literally been the only problem I've ever had with installing Erlang so far. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I would say ASDF, 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 really good. Um, definitely give it a go and definitely make sure that you're trying to keep your software up to date uh, I know like in the latest um, Erlang OTP release so 20, when 20 came out they improved like map performance by about yeah. 5% or something like that and um, it made a noticeable difference to us in our system yeah and uh, I mean they're constantly adding new things to OTP which is cool for a <clears throat> mature platform, but I really like the dirty schedulers they added recently. I don't know if a lot of you are using uh, native inline functions, but um, it's a big win to not block your your VM uh, if you are using those. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, and mm-hmm. they do release about like every year, I think, at this every point. Every year sounds right. Yeah, I yeah. think so. 
So, I mean, it's not like you're like having this ridiculous churn, like upgrade cycle of having to upgrade all the time, cough, cough, node, cough. Um, but, <laughs> you know, I, it, it is like, it's one of those things that you still need to do. And I think Elixir does a really good job of uh, talking about what's been deprecated and, you know, adhering to actual kind of Semver versioning. Um, yeah. yeah, and the, the new versions of Elixir actually have um, function annotations for deprecation, oh. uh, which is pretty cool. Actually, this weekend, you can hear MPEX speaker Pete Gamash talk about adding documentation um, to your Elixir code for making sweet docs. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he's actually going to talk about these things, but um, you can add a, a deprecation warning to your functions uh, and also an attribute that says when the function was added, like what version it was added into your API. That's really cool. I didn't even know yeah. about that. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, Brand new uh, feature in 1.6. I think you should put a, a link to that in the show notes as well so I can go and read it. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I mean, in very non-Elixir talk fashion, I would say we have a concrete definitive answer. Wow. Um, which is weird. But yeah, ASDF. And if anyone has any other experiences or completely disagrees with us, um, please get in touch on the GitHub page, which is github.com slash Elixir talk slash Elixir talk. Cool. Wow, what closure. What a strange <laughs> feeling. I know. It, yeah, it's kind of weird, right? Yeah. So our next question... <clears throat> Our next question comes from GitHub user S. Gotchkeys. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm sorry if I'm not. I think you did a good job. Thank you. <laughs> uh, who asks, I recently switched jobs and I'm now developing... Sorry. The question is, how much Erlang do I need slash should I learn? And the background is, uh, this person recently switched jobs to developing a web application in Elixir and Phoenix, has no prior knowledge of Erlang, Elixir, or Ruby or Rails, other than some code examples. He's worked with PHP, Python, uh, Clojure, and ClojureScript, and wants to know, okay, well, if I am learning this new Erlang slash Elixir ecosystem, how much Erlang, OTP, and Beam do I have to learn compared to Elixir Phoenix? And this is a great question because when you do come um, to the ecosystem at the level of Elixir and Phoenix, there is a, a, a lot of the iceberg below the surface. And um, I think it's it's very open to say, well, how much do I have to dig down there? And I think the top level answer is not a lot at first. Mm, yeah, it's a good point. Um, I, I agree with you. Like my experience was basically jumping into Elixir, not having to learn that much Erlang, um, really focusing all, on all of the kind of understanding Elixir first and understanding how all of that works without having any need to go into Erlang at all. Um, and I think that's an okay route, you know, like focus on the language that you're trying to implement before you've gone like really deep in understanding all of the Erlang ecosystem and what's come before it. Um, obviously a bit of historical context is nice. I, I would say that when you get a bit more advanced, understanding the beam and how the beam works and how it runs is a really, really important thing. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of really great resources on that. Um, I know of uh, Erlang in Anger, which is all talking about how you, um, how when you're operating Erlang systems on the beam, 
um, how they can fail and how it can go wrong. And that that was born out of a lot of experience at Heroku, actually. Um, mm. And it, that that is a, like an invaluable resource if you're actually deploying this thing in anger and running it in production. Um, and then I know Desmond is a big fan of uh, the Beam book as well, which is talking about similar kind of stuff, but talking about how uh, the Beam works, how you how code is optimized, how the scheduler works, and all lots of really interesting things like that. Um, yeah, it's um, despite being called the Beam book, it's a GitHub repo, and um, we'll link to that in the show notes. But it's a great way to understand what is a process under the hood. How how is memory managed? Um, very mm. interesting stuff. And you know, a lot of this information isn't really out there in quite the same way, um, right? As it is in Ruby, which I'm used to. Right. I, I mean, what's your experience been with like how much Erlang you've needed day to day? Well, when I first got into Elixir a few years ago, uh, they hadn't wrapped all of the Erlang libraries and Elixir modules, so you would still have to call out to Erlang. Um, with some regularity, not often, but it would come up. Um, I ignored it for a long time. I mean, I was just focused on learning Elixir, writing application code, understanding what Phoenix wanted, and getting used to the syntax. And from there, I got into, oh, this is a process. Okay, this is you know how it supports the actor model. This is um, how supervision trees work. Um, and then I learned... So that was more learning OTP. And I would kind of dabble in Erlang from time to time because the docs are, a lot of the, the docs are, are written in Erlang syntax. They have imported that to Elixir. I'm still not that good with Erlang. I mean, I understand we're defining functions and modules. This is a variable I'm pattern matching um, and so forth, but I'm not fluent in Erlang. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. I, I came from Elixir Phoenix and then to OTP and then the Beam when it's like, okay, now that I understand how these processes interact, how I send messages to them, how do they do processes? So it's just been a slowly diving down lower and lower. Um, but it wasn't, I don't know, it, it probably took me several months before I got into the Beam internals. Mm, I, I would say like, uh, I've, I had a similar journey as well, I think. Um, the one the one part where I really felt like I needed to understand a bit more Erlang was when we were using ETS, uh, which is, or mm -hmm. ETS, um, which is the Erlang term storage uh, in memory kind of key value store that ships with OTP. Um, and there was no great Elixir wrapper for it, which meant yeah. that basically to use it, you had to dig through some Erlang docs, which is okay, you know, like there was a bunch of examples online. Um, it was fairly okay to get up and running. There was some like, there's some weird intricacies with the syntax at time and what it expects. Uh, like you often can't pass it at binary. You have to turn it into a char list, if I remember mm -hmm. rightly. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, I think the worst thing is when it goes wrong and basically like the error you get out is like argument error. And you're like, what? <laughs> and there's like no other insight into why that happened or uh -huh. where that happened or anything. So um, you're effectively just like at that point, just playing around with different combinations until you can get it to work. But I think that was like my worst experience with, with it. But other than that, um, yeah, I've, I've had to use the, uh, first in first out queue that Erlang ships as well which is you know very very useful um, and there's and again I, there's no Elixir wrapper for that and I think um, it is much easier to learn that stuff once you're comfortable with Elixir syntax and you know 
basically what it's trying to do and, and how it will get there. Sorry, it's easier to learn Erlang when you, you know where the syntax is going and what concepts it's trying to um, get you to do. Yeah, nice, so, a good point. Yeah, I, I think starting there is a really good idea. I, I mean, I would say, like, you don't need to go... I don't think... I think there's obviously inherent value in understanding Erlang as a language, like, even as an Elixir developer. Um, I would always say that, like, it's good to understand where these things have come from and understand the context and um, things like that. But, like, yeah, I don't think you have to start there. Um, I think that it's worthwhile doing once you're a bit more familiar with Elixir itself and the processes. And as Desmond said, like understanding OTP. Mm -hmm. um, every time I describe to anyone about learning Elixir, I always talk about these these two different humps in, in your journey. So you have the initial one, which is just understanding the language and the syntax and all of those kinds of things. And I think the next one that's really, really important is thinking in processes and how you start to how you start to imagine designing software systems that are um, that are process oriented and really thinking about these independent processes that talk to each other via message passing and kind of mm -hmm. adopt that kind of mindset and gen servers and all the rest of it. Um, and I think at that point is kind of a logical time to dip your toes a little bit more into Erlang, right? Yeah, I think so. And then as your app grows uh, is when you can really dig into the beam. Uh, yeah. I mean, Definitely. certainly if you're curious, then dive in. But I don't think you really need to know how it works until you run up against uh, the allocated process limit or... Uh, yeah, the memory, like uh, the atom table limit and things like that. Yeah, which most of your apps will not bump up against. But once you get under serious load, you have to start tweaking things. Mm. That's when you need to know how it works. Yeah, and I mean, there's, there's always exceptions to this as well, I guess. Like, if you're... If you're dealing with like very high performance systems in the beginning, uh, then yeah, maybe it's worth you looking into how the beam works early on, so you mm -hmm. understand it and um, how you know to, uh, like how you can optimize it as well. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think the other time where I actually had to get a bit more involved in understanding um, be like the beam and also just Erlang is um, all around when you're producing releases with distillery, because yeah, you have that. to start to understand some like weird system start variables and you, you end up with this like this layer where you're kind of interrupting with um, more of the like lower level code that, that is generated from the compiler mm -hmm. um, and when, especially when you're like packaging a release up. Yeah and understanding how it bootstraps an application um, sets up a master process and supervisor mm. um, and then eventually boots your application. Yeah. And then reading the debugs when it doesn't work. <laughs> like the, the, the Erlang logger, the error logger oh, yeah. that comes. I mean, it's, it's, it's good. Like You can read it, but it, it takes a while to get your head around it sometimes. Pages of tuples. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then tracing that back to like what actually happened and what caused it to not start. Yeah. I mean, that, I, I guess that's like a something worth adding to this, which is like, you know, Elixir is a language that's written out of a bunch of macros and compiles down and runs on something else so you're always going to have this weird like interrupt at times mm -hmm. um, and I think uh, I think they've done a fantastic job of making that as smooth as possible but uh, you do always end up with this this like a certain point where you're like what? what's going on? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and like something's crashed and you're like why did that do that or why didn't that start or what's this error you know yeah um, yeah so uh, 
Sounds like we have a bottom line. How much Erlang do I need or should I learn? Some. <laughs> Some. You'll know it when you need it. Yeah. No, I think that's a nice rule of thumb, definitely. Um, yeah, and I think, that, like we said, there's probably exceptions, but I think that's a good, that's a good uh, rule of thumb there. Cool. Yeah, so we've Pretty got time good. for one more. Yeah, we're on a roll. Let's keep it going. Okay, let's do it. Um, so the third question of today... Uh, is thinking functionally and that's from Mario Zig um, so he says uh, if you guys have come from an OO background I'm interested to know how the transition went specifically stuff like what was hard what do you miss what is better how others can do it and Elixir versus other functional languages um, so I know both Desmond and I have, have come from an OO background so uh, I think we have some experience with this Yes, um, I do. Although I'm one of those people that after I've after I've done something, I forgot what it was like to not to know it. Mm. Um, but I can remember my my early experiences uh, coming into Elixir, and I started with Phoenix. Um, I got the Programming Phoenix book, and they walk you through an example of building a uh, a YouTube commenting system. I think it pull in a YouTube video, and then you can add real time comments. And the first thing that struck me was that I had to pass the connection structs to all of the functions in my controller. And coming from Rails, I was used to that being in the background, and I thought, God, this is really annoying. Why do I have to keep putting this thing everywhere? I wish I could just store it somewhere in the background and access it when I wanted. And the um, variable immutability. So I would assign something to the connection, like set a user in the session. But then I wouldn't save that variable or return it. I would uh, assign it and leave it there and then return an original version of it, which was not mutated, which did not have the thing I dropped in. And so I was always wondering where my user sessions were going. So getting used to that was um, a bit of a, a hurdle. I wouldn't say it was a challenge. It was just more one of those, like, set the bookmark in your brain that this is how it works. And now it's second nature to return the variables that I've been uh, mutating. And I've really come around on um, passing the con into these controller actions um, because it. I've gotten used to this, uh, the paradigm of being explicit mm. and passing everything you want into a function and then knowing what you're getting out of it, I think is a much better way to program. Right, right. I know, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that you know, thinking about functions is just something that takes in data, transforms it, and or does something with it and spits it back out. It's like mm -hmm. it's such such an elegant model to think about data flow in your organ in your application and just think like, yeah, this thing comes in, whether it's a con or whatever it is, you just do a bunch of work, you're transforming data, and data goes back out. And, and I can remember being an OO programmer and and hearing all this fuss about functional programming and oh well if you're working with objects you never know where your data is coming from and I didn't give a lot of weight to that I, I didn't really understand uh, but now when I go back to Rails projects and I'm in a model somewhere and there's a method that takes no arguments and it changes the object that it's a member of and references something else that's somewhere else um, it's really confusing now and mm. it's a lot of mental work to think, okay, where is this coming from? Have I set up my conditions properly, particularly if you're testing? Um, have I set up the conditions properly for this method to work? And am I doing something elsewhere that I can't see? 
And now when you're working with a function that's only operating on the stuff you've passed in, um, it's much easier to set up tests. It's much easier to understand what the function's doing, what it depends on, uh, which helps when you're trying to reason about your program and when you're trying to refactor too. Mm, no, definitely. I, I mean, have you ever got to that point where you've like, you've missed being able to ma- manipulate global state in uh, Elixir as well? Or like global context, I guess. Sure. It's, yeah, it's the, it's, it's that sort of example when um, maybe I want to save something like, what was the IP of the person who made this web request? Right. Um, and I want to pass that all the way down. Um, that can get a little clumsy. And my answer is usually just pass it all the way down. Mm. Um, because in the long run, it's easier to think about as opposed to spinning up an agent or something and stashing it there and then killing the agent at the end of the request. I feel like that's cheating. Yeah, I I mean, I actually had that exact scenario uh, where we were doing our audit logs where it would start with a web request, right? So you'd say in like, give me the request ID and the IP address of the person making the request. Uh Um, And then it would get passed down through all of this service layer. And then after all of that, there would be an asynchronous kind of creation of this audit log entry. And, you know, this is all kind of coming in on a single process because of how Phoenix uh, works with Cowboy and every single person on there is a different process, effectively, every request. So what we ended up doing is actually, instead of passing that context the whole way down, what we actually did is just put it in the process dictionary, which is probably a bit of an anti-pattern. But, Mm -hmm. you know, there is an escape hatch if you need it. And I think that's... I don't think like everyone should think like, oh God, I need to do this. I need to do it like that because it, it's better or something. But like, you know, you still have this ability to have global state if you need it. And in our case, it made most sense because uh, we were effectively like seven layers deep before the time where we needed to set this data. Um, maybe we should have refactored away from that. Maybe that was a smell in itself. But, you know, I think that's the only time where I've been like, oh God, I really, really need to do this like global state or process state effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that pattern before um, using the process dictionary. A challenge there is you don't want to put a lot of stuff in your process dictionary. No, and I mean, in our case, it was two strings, so I feel Mm -hmm. okay-ish about it. And and, yeah, I mean, I would... I definitely, like, we were all debating it at the time. The PR, like, had a bunch of comments on it because everyone was like, "Eh, (laughs) yeah, we doing this right? You know, but (laughs) I, I, I do think, like, Thinking functionally and just, you know, it's so much simpler in a lot of ways than modeling things in objects. If, if is that right or wrong? I don't know. Like, and it's really you can definitely debate the merits of both both kind of ways of thinking about and structuring new programs, right? But I think a clarity that functional programmers brought me is like putting things in places like you no longer have to like question every single thing that you're doing right you can just think oh all of these functions are transforming the same kind of data and they all live together and they're all doing something like related oh okay that's a module oh so they're all grouped they're all grouped there right and instead of like these convoluted design patterns where i i was like a huge fan of like gang of four kind of things and I, i i honestly like i believed in that way of of trying to produce software systems but it felt like we had to interject all of these rules around like how to do it right just to stop us doing it wrong and in that Mm -hmm. way like 
maybe the approach was wrong in the first place. But then you hear like small talk people and they're like, no, it just everyone else is doing it wrong. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, and I think it sets up a situation where you're programming uh, with objects and you're thinking about what you're doing, but you're also thinking about it um, at a higher level. Like, okay, well, what's what am I really doing here? What's the larger pattern? So now you've bifurcated your mind and you don't always have the answers to uh, where, like, where you're going, and it then it leads into other rules about oh, well, there's the rule of three. Yeah, that says when you refactor something, and I have seen heated arguments about when it's appropriate to refactor something. Like, oh, we haven't used it three times. Oh, but we're clearly doing this pattern. Heated arguments burn through a lot of client cash. <clears throat> and what's nice about functional programming is you know you're doing it wrong because you get, like Chris said, a funny feeling. Mm. And um, there is, I mean, there is a an adjustment phase when you're getting into it and you think, oh, am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? But that quickly fades into, well, it works, so that's cool. And then when it starts to feel clunky, that's a, that's a sign that, okay, maybe I should move some functions around. Um, and at that point, I think other patterns will uh, present themselves for function organization because that's really all it is. It's just organization. It's not really a pattern. Yeah, and um, and that's all you need to rely on. It's like, does right. this does this feel weird? And to use your example of a, a context, not seeing the code, but I think if you are passing something many layers down, then perhaps that's a sign that something that's happening further down should really happen farther, farther up. up. Yeah, and then anything you need to pass in, like a request ID, an IP address, you can drop into a single context struct or map or something. Um, instead of having a bunch of different arguments in. It's just kind of a options or extra info um, list that you can tack on. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And, and you're right, like understanding those, you know, it, it's, it becomes quite easy to smell the bad smells, doesn't it, really? You know, like, <laughs> it's, you, like you can see it and you're like, oh, no, you just need to break out a couple more functions there and this will be uh -huh. like really easy to understand and really easy to kind of like reason about in your mind. Um, I, I, like the thing for me that I've found doing a lot of Elixir is basically knowing the, the enum library inside out has been very valuable, right? Yeah. I find myself like... I think like most of the day I'm, when I'm coding, like the enum docs are just open. Um, and I, I just find myself using that so much because you're just doing data transformation, right? So what do you need to do data transformation? Oh, a bunch of like helper functions to help you do it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm reducing over something. Oh, I'm, I'm just doing a map and I'm like adding some properties to a piece of data over and over, you know? it's. Yeah. Honestly, even if you didn't have all the good stuff that the beam gives you with the actor model and the concurrency, um, I would use Elixir for most programming tasks, tasks because I've really fallen for this uh, functional style of thinking. Um, I haven't used a lot of other functional languages. I dabbled in Clojure a few years ago, and as a Lisp that has other stuff going on, and of course it's running in the JVM, which mm -hmm. I find is a little clunky. Um, I did a little Scala programming at the same time, and Scala is, uh, we're not going to, I don't want to get into it too much, but because you can do everything with Scala, it's hard to have a coherent functional style like you have with Elixir. And even with JavaScript, which you can write in a functional way, it's got those hidden arguments. And yeah, and, it's just, and the same with Ruby as well, right? Like, do you remember that whole, like, functional Ruby craze where everyone yeah. was like, 
and and to be honest like when I go back and write Ruby now I kind of try and write it like Elixir where I'm like I'm not mutating state I'm actually just returning things in functions and trying to do it a bit more like that yeah Um, and if if I want to change something or alter something in a in a method then I pass it in as an argument right yeah right absolutely but then I don't know but maybe that's the wrong thing as well because you know the language I mean the, the fact that the language lets you do either I guess means that you kind of end up in this murky middle ground and I guess that's like Scala as well like you end up with this like hodgepodge of like some things that are functional and some things that are OO and yeah. you're interrupting with other libraries and they're like creating objects and I don't know. yeah and I like the fact that Ruby's uh, core philosophy is like well the programmer knows best you know if you want to reopen this class and redefine a <laughs> an operator then you can do that I mean it's all up to you um, but I do think it, it's sort of once there's a, a, a crack in the functional immutable style, then all the water will leak out. Mm. And so I do like that Elixir enforces, you know, you from the ground up it has to be immutable and have to pass in these arguments. Um, and it supports things like tail recursion um, as a first class thing. Yeah, absolutely. I yeah, I, I mean, after programming just in elixir for a few years now as well i think i don't know i I really i just really like the simplicity of it for sure Mm -hmm. like thinking in functions just data comes in data goes out you're breaking things into different modules that are logically grouped i mean there are some patterns that we i think we're introducing as a community as well um i look at phoenix and i think about context and i think about that being a pattern for sure um, but really, all that is is just again logical grouping of things, right? Yeah. Under a namespace. Um, yeah. And that's that's good because we're adding a layer of organization to our code, and you know I think that can only be a, a good thing. It's funny like seeing people debate about like, oh, should I do it like this? Should I do it like that? And it's like just try it. Put yeah. some nice grouping together. Put some nice kind of boundaries around different parts. And if it doesn't work move it around they're just functions right refactoring is so easy super easy yeah yeah uh, i know and then that's been like eye-opening for me and, and and my team as well i think like having a bunch of other people who've come from like python and java kind of backgrounds like when they get it and they're like oh yeah this is a lot easier mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that explicitness is really powerful and sure people get frustrated in the same ways that you did as well when you were talking about like oh sometimes the explicitness is kind of annoying and you kind of want to do like um you you want some extras in the in the language sometimes to just help you out a little bit um like i really like decorators and i really like that pattern i kind of wish that the language had first class first class support for it um but at the end of the day it's just function composition and yeah you know yeah. you can and do, do that in other ways i do think it's a great way to represent entities in the real world which is really what programming is about right um things are happening all at once uh the car is trying to start at the same time that the rain is trying to fall um and i think starting is not a property of a car it's an action taken on the car um and yeah i just my brain is very used to this now and it feels very fluid it feels like there's not a uh We'll call it a, a real-world programming impedance mismatch. Mm. Um, it just feels much smoother. So I would not want to go back to object-oriented programming. 
Um, I mean, I will still use Ruby for scripts or something and maybe roll up a couple of objects for um, for some basic simplicity. But any serious project, I would I would use Elixir for. Mm. No, I understand that. I'm uh, I'm definitely there as well. I guess that's why we host the podcast about it. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, <laughs> if we weren't in the, in bed with this, then we should find other jobs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So hopefully that answers the question a bit there as well. Um, yeah, and I can re- again, I can remember this is contradicting my first statement. I can remember being uh, just an OO programmer and not seeing what all the fuss was about uh, with these functional functional loudmouths on the other side of the fence and having crossed over um, I would recommend it give it more than a day and uh, I think it will really really help your code definitely definitely cool so wow, I mean, it's an, an exciting week yeah three yeah. questions that's the first three questions and then uh, some of you will be lucky enough to hear Chris talk some more this weekend at MPEX sorry in advance don't be sorry Chris is a great speaker <laughs> hopefully yeah and that's that's the, the rest of my week just working on that uh, working on the talk and really excited to give it and, and to be there in LA with everyone so yeah so uh, we'll probably do some Elixir Talk special uh, this weekend we're still figuring out a couple of details with that but if you want to hang out with us and ask us questions in person then um, grab a ticket show up and we'll hang out yeah definitely um yeah be looking forward to seeing everyone and uh yeah cool speaking well thanks again for joining us this has been another terrific episode of elixir talk uh we will be back soon please send us some questions on our github repo and until then keep elixir keep elixiring